boy, oh boy, lots to do today once again. Day seven of the UAW strike. And still no serious progress because Sean Fain, and I'm using serious progress in air quotes because that's the the line that the UAW and the Big Three need to get to in order to avoid more targeted strikes. Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, is set to host a Facebook Live event tomorrow at 10 a.m. where if they don't get to that serious progress line, then they will add additional targeted strike locations to their existing assembly plant in Missouri, the Wayne plant, uh, that uh, that th- the Ford Motor Company Wayne plant, and then the Jeep plant out in Toledo. So we are in, as we are in day seven. Remember, there's a lot on the table. There's a lot of asks by the UAW for the Big Three, and many of them have come forward with what they are saying are historic offers incredibly substantial offers and the UAW still hasn't bit on that bait. So you've got day seven, hundreds of workers have already been laid off by the big three because they say their operations are so interconnected that it, that you can't justify people in some plants working when other plants are, are down. So we'll continue to watch that. And we'll give you an update uh, as 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 we go on, because this remains the biggest story in our area. Also today, on the heels of his address to the U.N., Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Washington, D.C., to make the case to lawmakers for continued assistance in their efforts to fight Russia. Now, Zelensky met behind closed doors with members of the House and the Senate today, went to the Pentagon And we'll sit down with President Joe Biden at the White House. Now, Zelensky did want to address a joint session of Congress. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says that there was just no time for that this week. Now, the interesting thing here, Brian, is that the last time Zelensky was here, the Democrats had control of of both chambers, and obviously Joe Biden was the president. So the interesting thing is that now the Republicans have control of the House. And there are many Republicans, not a majority, but many Republicans who are looking at the the aid that we are sending to Ukraine, the millions and billions of dollars, as too much, and we need to rein it back in. So Zelensky's in town to, to plead with lawmakers that more needs to be done and they they need to continue to 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 at least to a certain extent fund ukrainians efforts in their in their fight against russia yeah i and you can't it's hard to argue with him because he's making the point where okay today it's ukraine if you if you do not continue to back us financially so that we can get the the equipment that we need or the training that we need or the the munitions that we need then what what happens when uh, Vladimir Putin wants to go to Poland or Vladimir Putin wants to go to any of those uh, uh, countries in the region 
Well, then it's you're in World War Three because those are all NATO countries. Well, we and we did do this once before in the 1930s. There was right. a guy who wanted other countries and took them, and we just went okay, okay, yeah. So it might be smart to invest the money now and go. You know what? Let's just draw the line here and instead I, of this. I, I know that Ukraine has a fraught history. I understand that there has been corruption in Ukraine for many years. I understand that Ukraine isn't even technically a full-blown democracy. But I think you need to be very careful when you've got a bully on the block with with what they claim to be big-time weapons and they're just you, you can't allow them to just steamroll over people. So I think that, to me, has always been my position. Absolutely. And maybe we do need to look at the money that we give, or maybe we need to specify even greater what the money should be used for. Yeah. You but, can't just shovel money at a problem. But, but I do, and I do think that other countries need to bear some of that, that burden, too, even true. more so. Especially the ones around there that are going to be way more affected than we Correct. are. Absolutely. I have no problem with that either. Correct. But at the same time. I don't think you could just cut it off. You don't. Yeah. You don't just walk away from something like this because we've seen if you don't. What is it? If, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Absolutely. I, let's really let's not repeat that part of it because that was a really bad part of history. In the WTF story of the day. You ready for this? <laughs> okay. And, and then this this is not even in Florida. Miraculously. This is in Indianapolis. What? An Indianapolis woman is accused of stabbing a baby inside a hotel while attempting to stab her dog for eating a chicken sandwich. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Police say they found a one-year-old girl stabbed in the neck. Short time later, police found the suspect hiding in a bush near the hotel. Here's how it went down. 32-year-old Sharon Key, the little girl's aunt, and the family... Went to Burger King. They got some food, went back to the hotel. The dog ate Sharon Key's chicken sandwich. So Sharon Key does what any rational person would do. Of course. Grab your knife and chase the dog around the hotel room. Who wouldn't do this? Then the dog jumped on the bed where the baby was lying down. And when she went to stab the dog, she missed and stabbed the baby in the neck. As one does. As one would. (laughs) can't tell you how many times the cat has got on my lap and wanted some of my food, and I grab the knife and I go chasing the cat. <laughs> you know, it's almost like everybody in this country hears, <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and everybody else says, hold on, hold my beer. Yeah. You know. Let me get, let, let, let me, let me <laughs> submit Sharon Key into testimony. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I just, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How does, how? Why? I just, I don't even know. I, I would like Your to dog, know. Go ahead. I want to know what kind of knife it was. Butter does, knife? I, does it matter? Well, I mean, a little girl was stabbed in the neck. Well, I'm just curious. I didn't, I didn't get the, the. The, the the particular type of knife. And huh. a dog eating your chicken sandwich, that's kind of his job. The dog's like, I'm hungry. If you leave food around, yeah. that's what a dog does. Know, it's man. its job. I don't know. I, I just I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, all right, auto show, no transition there. Continues on down at, down at Huntington Place. Uh, Lloyd Jackson joins us uh, with, um, y- y- you talk about uh, other important companies that, that go into building these cars. Uh, WJR Senior News Analyst Lloyd Jackson highlights another here on JR Afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Lloyd. 
Good afternoon, Chris. During Technology Days at the 2023 North American International Auto Show, I took a stroll over to the Aishin Corporation booth. Aishin is a $32 billion company and is consistently a top 10 global tier one supplier of automotive components and systems. Brad Owens, Senior Vice President of North America Sales, talked to me about what Aishin showcased at this year's auto show. So our showcase is electrification. So our company is a traditionally a, a engine transmission company, component supplier. So as we transition into the EV stage and the EV uh, future, we have a lot of products that we're showcasing to improve um, efficiencies, uh, zero emissions as we go towards um, meeting those goals in the future. You guys are making some tremendous strides in, um, in EV innovation and communication. What are some of those strides? Yeah, so we're focusing on the drive part of the EV system, so the e-axles. Um, we're also working on a complete system. Um, so we, if you look at the heat management or the aerodynamics, as well as power management. So we're looking at it as a more of a systems approach. So um, whatever you're looking for, you know, we can provide as a whole system. One of those systems is Aishin's Road Maintenance Solutions technology designed to detect road abnormalities such as potholes from data and images collected by in-vehicle cameras while driving and formulate road repair plans to assist municipalities in road management. Owens also talked to me about Aishin's Proving Grounds test track near Fowlerville. We have various different types of tracks that we have available for um, anyone that wants to come out and do any type of testing or validation. So we have off-road track, high-speed track, we have skid pads, even an ADAS simulation. I, I would think that maybe that police or, or maybe even new drivers may come out and use that uh, proving ground sometime. We do offer that. So for new students that are, are learning to drive, so they we show how the, the skid pad works. So it simulates if it's ice or if it's snow or if it's rain. So it really helps to um, improve their efficiency when driving. As well as state police, we offer any type of support that they may need for training and, and ongoing um, those type of activities. Owen says many of Aishin's innovations represent a big leap toward achieving the shared vision of the industry of sustainable transportation. Obviously, one of our goals is zero emissions, so we're working very hard to, to meet those goals. So we're looking at various areas for that to achieve, uh, whether it's in aerodynamics to improve range, uh, also energy management, power management. So um, that's our goal is to, to uh, forward that uh, zero emissions um, and carbon neutrality uh, mission. Is it moving too fast? Will you guys be able to keep up with how the government wants everybody to have those zero emissions at a certain time? Yeah, and I think that's a really good question. So I think that's uh, the, the sentiment of a lot of companies is understanding when exactly is that going to happen. So, um, But we are, we're working very closely with our customers, so trying to meet their milestones and the volumes that they're going to require. So we're walking in lockstep with them to be able to achieve those goals. For more information on Aishin Corporation's EV systems, power management solutions, energy management innovations, and state-of-the-art aerodynamic systems, you can visit their website. It's AishinWorld.com, A-I-S-I-N World.com. Chris? Good stuff. Lloyd Jackson, thank you very much. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chris. All right. Uh, we got to take a break. There has been an effort underway by, by law enforcement, by federal agencies in in this city to cut down on violent crime a pretty good job over the last couple of holiday weekends we'll talk about that next here on jr afternoon traditionally detroit's eighth and ninth precincts are some of the most violent just violent communities or areas in the country and there has been a, a real effort recently when you 
combined forces with the Detroit Police Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, trying to bring violent crime down in these areas. Well, between Memorial Day and Labor Day weekends, there was a double-digit drop in carjackings, a double-digit drop in robberies and gun crimes in those areas. And when you're looking to eliminate violent crime, those are the areas that, that you really target as law enforcement. And, and thankfully, because of the One Detroit Violence Reduction Partnership, we are seeing a double-digit drop in violent crimes in, the, in these areas to the tune of 11%, 20% respectively. U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Dawn Eisen, is a key factor in all of this, and she joins us here on JR Afternoon. Dawn, it's great to have you, first of all. And, and this is a lot of really good work. How, how did these talks get underway for this partnership? And then how does, does a partnership like this attack and, and, and really try to reduce these violent crimes in these dangerous areas? Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate your interest in it, and thank you so much for um, – we are so encouraged by these numbers. Yeah. It came about – we've really been doing this work, and we formalized the partnership, I think, on April 19th. But we always collaborate, but we tried to just be more intentional and focused about what we were doing. And so when I came into the office, I talked about just really focusing on the right people because the evidence shows that it's a small number of, of violent people, a small number of violent groups, and small clusters of violent areas that contribute to the majority of the violent crime. And so we are just being very focused in the way we are addressing this violent crime. And we went from citywide, year to date, we went from 809 homicides to 690. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, that's violent crime. So that's 119 fewer victims of violent crime. And we're very encouraged by these numbers, but we know we still have work to do. So we came together and we not only came together as law enforcement, but we brought the community along. We brought faith-based um, leadership on and we brought focused deterrence groups, ceasefire on. And we are all working together to provide a holistic approach to trying to reduce this violence. And, and I want to I want to talk about one of the ways that you're, you're trying to reach out to the community. I, I've always... I always maintain that your job, yours and other law enforcement officials jobs are so difficult because criminals oftentimes, while they can potentially be swayed from doing wrong things, they're not always the smartest bunch. Right. And so it's very difficult to try to put bigger uh, roadblocks in front of them. Uh, to to dissuade them from committing these violent crimes. There has been an effort, though, between your office and the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office to charge these crimes federally wherever possible. Do you find that that uptick in, in kind of that harsh reality for these criminals, does that make a difference, do you think? I do think that they take notice when they are um, potentially facing federal charges. Under our summer enforcement program, we took 22 cases, and of those cases, we have already had guilty pleas. Some are still pending trial, and they're for various um, crimes, felon in possession. But these are violent folks that we have focused on, and so we are encouraged by those numbers, and they should be uh, um, they should be concerned because we are con- going to continue to focus on the right folks. And and one of the ways that you've tried to dissuade criminals from committing these violent crimes, and and 
And I we, we talked, uh, if you remember, just a few weeks ago about the peaceniks that you were having. And yeah. and and you had thousands of people show up to these things. And and I, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on how those work. And I know those are community outreach. I know that's a way for law enforcement to to get FaceTime with those in the community. It's a way for you to create that relationship of of hopefully uh, if you're missing a puzzle piece into the bigger picture, you can rely on the community to try to fill those gaps, perhaps in, in maybe a missing piece of evidence. But but what is how important is that outreach to the community? And then conversely, how do you keep that up and then improve that? Yes, um, it is um, building trust, building trust within the community, because we need the community to help us to solve crimes. But the peaceniks were more than that. It was providing resources to folks in the community and, quite frankly, focusing on people who are at risk of committing crimes. We really were trying to reach them too. We had all kinds of services there for them because again, for every person that we deter from crime makes the community safer too, in addition to the enforcement that we're doing. So we're trying to, again, attack this at all angles. So it was all of that. We had over 5,000 people combined at our peaceniks this, this year. And we're very encouraged by the folks who were there. I know that there were at-risk individuals, young people there, and they were going to the city services for Jumpstart, where you're paid to get an, um, for an apprenticeship job, and they'll pay you to train, pay to train you. And they were there trying to take advantage of those things, because we just believe that Every person that we're able to make a productive person serves our goal to create a, a place that is peaceful and improve the quality of life of the folks in Detroit. You know, and one thing I appreciate about you, Don Eisen, so much is like the, the, your predecessors before you, um, you've taken a very pragmatic approach into fighting crime in this city. And it is a partnership. And, and like, uh, like the Detroit Police Department or the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, we are trying to create a better community in this area. We are trying to create a better community for for people to want to move here and for people to want to open businesses here. And and when we when we have this kind of dark cloud hanging over us of the the, the crime that can occur, we need people to address it head on. You and of course many others in this partnership have. You mentioned that there's some other there's some more work to do. What do you what do you still see on the horizon that can be done to eliminate? even more of these violent crimes in the city? Yes, thank you. And to answer your last question, we will continue these kind of community engagement events. In fact, we have already planned what we are calling our community huddle and peace march in those very same communities, one on September 30th and one on October 7th. And at those um at those community huddles, they will be much like a press conference, like we did just yesterday. We're going to talk to the community there, report out the numbers to them, too, so that they can take some pride in it and feel some comfort from it as well. Let them ask us questions. And then we're going to march for peace with our faith-based leadership of One Detroit. We're going to march for peace in those areas, and we're going to continue to work. We won't stop doing that. We won't stop doing that. In addition to that, we will still be doing those things under the three pillars under One Detroit, enforcement, reentry and prevention. And so we're going to have roundtables like we did over the summer with returning citizens and, and pairing them up with service providers so that they too, we can help remove the barriers for them so that they too won't recidivate. And we can again, make the community safer by making them productive. We will continue to do that work and we will continue to focus on the most violent offenders, the most violent groups and the most violent places. We will continue that work in earnest. 
It's a big step forward, double-digit drops in, in violent crimes in two of the most violent precincts in the city of Detroit. Don Eisen, always appreciate you uh, making some time for us this afternoon. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much, Chris. You have, have a, a great- you do the same. Don Eisen, the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Um, we'll take a break. Coming back on the other side, I, I do want to talk about the immigration issue. Down at the southern border, migrants are coming across in droves. We'll talk about that as we continue here on JR Afternoon, right here on WJR. Don't go anywhere. Before I get to the issue at the border, I want to ask a question. Now, there has been a movement in the Democratic Party to try to target younger voters. And the Republicans have said, we need to do the same. We need to try to get the kids on our side. Now, let me ask you this. Brian, feel free to weigh in. Danielle, God bless. (laughs) Thank you. You've got George Soros now, according to a story in the New York Post, spending big time money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to basically buy TikTok users. And they're going out and talking about, you know, Joe Biden and bashing conservatives and different left wing causes. Okay, so this is. A story by the New York Post, they have public documents that they obtained that the Open Society Foundation, the George Soros Foundation, shelled out $5.5 million to a nonprofit Accelerate Action in 2020 and 2021. And they were doling out the money. And that was... To, to basically buy social media us, users to go out and say nice things about Joe Biden. Now, there is a story by Axios that says the administration is planning the same thing for this next election in 2024, where they're going to they're going to use utilize Joe Biden and utilize this vast network of of left leaning kids, essentially, to push Joe Biden with that demographic. Now, my question is, first of all, I mean, it kind of is indicative on where Gen Z is or where the younger that younger voting block is. If they're just taking money and saying whatever they want. Well, okay. Should the Republicans be doing something like this, too? Like. If you've got if you've got the money. Why not do the same thing? I I, like I don't understand. I mean, if you really want to target younger voters, well, maybe that's the way to do it. And I understand generally conservative ideology is not a sexy political leaning when you're 21 or 22. You're not really dialed in anyway, as opposed to the sexiness of Joe Biden. Ah, (laughs) ah, I don't know. I think I think young people. Hey, would you would you take twenty dollars to say something nice about Joe Biden? Is like I would take twenty dollars to say something nice about anybody. D- Ted Bundy was a great guy. Where's How about three hundred k? Yeah, exactly. you know what I mean. Yeah. So like I, it's 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 it feels wrong. It feels disingenuous, and it just it it feels phony. Like it feels fake. Well, yeah, as it's as like as a it's, mirage. But would it be marked as advertisement? Probably. I, so, I mean, sure. So then what's the difference? They're influencers. In that and, so, yeah, you're just spending money for so them to pimp your cause. In that and no, TV I'm not. Really. I'm not saying that they shouldn't do it. Yeah, I'm just wondering if Republicans should like. Why not? Like you're reaching a different audience. That's I just really all they're trying to do. I is just wonder if like 
the Republicans are paying attention, and I'm not saying that they need to do what the Democrats are doing, but I mean, yeah, the younger the younger demographic played a big role in them getting elected. So maybe you you look at it. That's all I'm saying. I just think it's first of all, I think it's weird, and I think they're going to do it again. And like Joe Biden has been pretty much a no-show like he doesn't do interviews very often he doesn't take questions very often like they're going to insulate him as much as possible ahead of this election if he's if he runs right for a variety of reasons i was just reading a story about uh he was joe biden repeated the same story twice almost verbatim within minutes like he didn't remember he just said told the story well, and it was a story about uh, 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 Charlottesville and why he wanted to run and yada yada. And the the, the press were like, "We just heard this. You just you just had it." So well, have I you, mean, have you you've talked to your grandpa, right? Old, I have. Old grandpas do that. We they, I am one now. We <laughs> we have we have six stories and we repeat them. That's this is what my wife told me. You honey, you've got like eight stories. Yeah, and you just tell them over and over. And it's like yeah. <laughs> So that's what Joe Biden's doing. He's only got a few stories. And when a new one pops up. A few stories? You've been in the Senate for a thousand years. Well, I'm sure there's an interesting, fascinating story Good about God. voting on a bill in the yeah, 1950s. Right. <laughs> I cast my vote. Um. All right. So this situation down at the border is a mess. I mean, you're up to about 8,000 people a day coming across. and And now the... President is sending 800 new troops to the border in an effort to focus on logistics and other functions at the border to allow more customs and border protection agents to return to their core mission and responsibility. The Department of Defense has already deployed 2,500 state and national guardsmen to assist DHS at the border. Another 24,000 CBP agents and officers have been deployed to the border, along with 2,600 non-uniformed officers. That's according to the White House. And what we've seen in New York, look, we talked about this a week or so ago. What we've seen in New York, what we've seen in Chicago, when all of these, these migrants are being bused to these areas, they can't handle it either. And now we're getting 8,000 people a day? I mean, this is a problem. And and it's like, it's like if you leave your front door open and there's a bunch of bees coming in. And I give Brian a, a Tupperware to try to catch them. But don't worry, I'll, I'll hold the Tupperware too and we'll catch as many as we can. We could just shut the door. Like, we could just shut it. Maybe that would work. Maybe, you know what we could do? We could just bring down the hive. Maybe we just bring down the hive and we don't have to worry about it anymore. No. I, I, uh, we'll just catch a bunch. We'll just, uh, well, it'll just be, you know. They don't reproduce or nothing, right? Right. <laughs> it'll just be me, me and Brian with a, with a Tupperware trying to catch these things. Like, I, it doesn't make any sense. I did it with a bat once. I can do it. With uh, that's a... why I brought it up. <laughs> I mean, you sound like you're, you're good at it. I'm the king of catching stuff in Tupperware. I just, I, like, I don't understand what the rationale is for not creating a, 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 a much better policy. Why are we, why is this okay? Why, how, I mean, under what circumstances is this okay? Or is it manageable? 
because it, it really isn't. You've got Texas Governor Greg Abbott now d- d- calling it an invasion at the southern border. And yeah, there's some, you know, maybe you juice that up a little bit. But he said on Twitter, I've officially declared an invasion at our border because of Biden's policies. Okay. We're building a border wall, razor wire, and marine barriers. We're also repelling migrants. But that that's not enough. And again, I, this isn't like an indictment on these people. It's I don't, it's not that. But you just, it, it's too much. It's too many people. And for, you know, the... The people who are most offended by this are people who have come to this country and gone through the channels, the proper channels, that have spent the money or the time or the resources uh, and getting their affairs in order to make that transition legally. And when you are when you when you just send thousands of people over the border every day, it's it's like a faucet. You just can't turn it off. Like, what, what do you do? But at the same time, you got to be kind of careful with this because you're painting with a you can you're not. I'm not saying you you could paint with a broad brush and you turn everybody who is from uh, of Hispanic descent. And they're those people. And then the crazy people target them. I mean, remember covid? It was the China virus. And suddenly people are just punching Asian people for no reason. I mean, you got to be. Was that was that real or was that manufactured? No, that was real. I mean, Asian people were just being attacked. Yes, (laughs) because I I know I remember watching CNN one day and they played a a video and it was like a seven year old video. We ran PSAs here. Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, fine. I don't think they're going to put the. But what I'm what I mean is. But yes, yeah, no. This and you're whole right. country was built on that. And remember, yes. no Irish were allowed. Oh, sure. And, you know, and so you just got Italians be were that you demonized. Don't turn, yeah, a whole class How of people you? into into this those people where they're the enemy. It's not. It's, it's not dangerous. an enemy. It's not of those people. But it's just too calling, many bodies. It's an invasion. It's just too. It's it's not. Uh, he but didn't. When I don't it, think he said but, it's a. You said it was an invasion. That's what Greg Abbott said. Okay, well, when you start calling it stuff like that, the inva- invaders aren't guys that knock on the door and go, hey, we brought cake. They're bad guys. Well, I you mean, know. true. So you got to be careful with the rhetoric. I mean, this uh, an invasion is an instance of invading a country or region with an armed force. Yeah, and they're not armed. I mean, they, some of them might be. I would imagine the majority are just people trying yeah, yeah. to find I think a better majority, life. Yes. But it's it it's just too many people. It's too many bodies. Where do we put them? What do we do? I, it's just it's too much. So like you, you gotta you Let's, gotta create a different way. We'll annex Canada. We'll use some of their space. Fine, fine. get them away. That's fine. They're I think not a lot using of all that space. All that all that land was just burned. Exactly. It's all. <laughs> we'll it just build some put houses. A, we'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. It's not a bad idea. All right, <laughs> we got to take a break. Uh, coming up next. Look, the the, the uh, public days are happening down at the North American International Auto Show, and EVs are front and center. We'll talk about uh, c- kind of what we're seeing on that front next on JR Afternoon. All right, the auto show continues down at Huntington Place, and uh, there's no doubt that electric vehicles are, are front and center, and, and they are very prominently featured in this particular auto show but there are so many other ev features that if you're tooling around you're going to be able to see you're going to be able to feel and touch and ask questions about because whether it's the infrastructure issue 
uh, or or the vehicles themselves, it's a good place to find answers. Jennifer Mefford's the national co-chair of the Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program, and she joins us now from the auto show. Jen, good to have you. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm, I'm great. With the sound of squealing tires. I love it. It takes me yeah. back to last week. Look, it's it's a great, there's a, no doubt, it's a great Absolutely. show. And it, it's very hands-on for folks. What are you getting from people? Because I, I know you're spending a lot of time in the in the charging area, but w- what's the questions yeah. you're getting from people? So I definitely say the Hummer is still number one choice on the track, followed <laughs> by the Lyric. <laughs> I'm keeping track. Both good options. And they're both great options. Yep. But, yeah, so... A lot of folks are coming to the EV Learning Center and asking, you know, really for me, I think questions that are just, just natural questions. How do I charge this faster at home? How does that work? What does it cost to install? Um, am I going to need a panel upgrade? It's really kind of the basics. But for the most part over these last 10 days, I'm talking to customers that either have ordered an EV or are getting ready to. So it's interesting to me to see how far we've come in the last year. But there's also a lot more product in the market. Well, there's no doubt. And it and there's only more coming as the, 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 the days and weeks move on. Um, what's the I, I, I guess I'm I'm interested to know the vibe that you're getting from people. Like let's say they haven't ordered an EV or they're just trying to find answers to a lot of the the questions or concerns that they have. Do you feel like like people are warm to this idea or warming to the idea or are they still apprehensive what's your read on it yeah i mean i feel like it's both definitely i we've got you know folks coming in who are riding an ev and and will come in and be like you know i'm just not there yet the market's not there yet i'm just not comfortable at all which i get we also have a lot of people who are like you know what these cars are amazing that was awesome i either ordered one or i'm going to be ordering one and the one that i want is available to order so I think that's great. They, they do want to know uh, for their specific home situation, right? Whether they're in a single-family home, multi-unit dwelling, apartment complex, condos, what does that charging at home look like? And then also, how quickly is this public infrastructure coming in? We've all been talking a lot about commitment, um, you know, from the Fed all the way down to the state and private industry on putting more fast public charging infrastructure in. They definitely want to know that, Chris, and they also want to know how are they going to be able to get across this great state of Michigan, east to west, north to south, all over the place. Um, so I'm having a lot of conversations about that. And, you know, there is a lot of infrastructure in Michigan plans and going in. Uh, and I think this picture is going to look really different as we turn the corner in the spring. Well, you, you brought up an interesting point because w- whether it's condos or apartments or any time of type of group living, I mean, those questions uh, I think are really valid. And if there, if there are concerns, those are really valid. Are, are you hearing from kind of bigger conglomerates, bigger businesses, um, property real estate companies that are talking about implementing this type of, of infrastructure into maybe new home builds or or uh, installing them in apartment complexes, places like that. Have those conversations already started? And are those are those plans that, that we may see in the near future, or are we still a ways out? Yeah, you know, I'm having those conversations all the time, even outside of the auto show. But I've has, had definitely a lot of companies that have kind of that multi-unit dwelling, whether it's apartment complex, with a, with a parking lot, or outside parking, coming in, and they're in the planning stages. 
part of that's being driven by, of course, incentives that they can see coming um, that would be, you know, help offset the cost. But there's also a bigger conversation, I think, with those facilities about, yes, they want to be able to provide EV charging um, to the folks that utilize those facilities. But they really want to talk about everything from battery storage integration, renewable energy. I mean, I'm having conversations kind of all about the energy footprint of those facilities, which is normal in the work that I do. But I think interesting that charging is an aspect of what they're talking to me about, but it isn't the only thing. Mm. Well, it's very interesting. How else is the show going in general, you think? I think the show is good. I think, you know, obviously during the week, it's a little bit quieter. Sure. But the people that are here are having a great time. There's no question the interactivity of the show, whether it's on the EV track and some of the other, uh, you know, the mountains, the Jeep and the Bronco Mountain, I think are really just huge draws. Yeah. So I'm expecting it to be a very robust weekend. Obviously, the weather is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I think people are having a great time downtown. No boots. No boots for the auto no show boots. are required anymore. It's good stuff. It is not. It has not snowed sideways. <laughs> nope. Jennifer Mefford, thank you so much. Appreciate you as always. We'll talk again next week. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you got it. That's Jennifer Mefford with the Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Training Program. Interesting stuff. All right, I want to get to a couple of your calls. 800-859-0957. 800-859-0WJR. We're rapping about the immigration issue. Carl is in Dundee. What's up, Carl? Hey, how you doing? Good. So how long has this been going on with the, the Border Patrol, Border Control? Years and years yeah. and years. We're not getting nowhere. Right? Yes, Either side. I would agree. It's getting worse, oh, I, mean, I would argue. Do we, do we need the government then at this point? Because they ain't doing nothing, in my opinion. Well, they're not. They don't. I mean, I don't know. They're not. They're not stemming the tide. They're not. There's no real answer here as to why we're no. there are 8,000 people coming across the border every day. Yes. But what's the solution? Uh, we're not getting nowhere. All we hear is. They're coming and coming and coming, and it's not getting no better. It's getting worse. Here, Carl, here's what I would do. Um, I, I would I would strengthen, and, and again, this is coming from somebody who I don't know that we need to have this many people coming across our border every day. But I would, I would, legally. I, yeah, yeah, I would strengthen, uh, yeah, of course, illegally, correct. I would strengthen our, uh, uh, the policies that are in place, and I would, I would try to work with Mexico and set up stations in Mexico to try to to stem it, right? If you create almost like a bottleneck or you're creating an area where it, it is difficult for people to come through or claim asylum or whatever it is, I, I that's that's would be my answer. But I, I there are answers across the board that I think that people would have. But, we you know, you're right. We haven't seen a lot of action on this. Carl, thank you. Dave in Rochester, I got just a couple, I got a, a 30 seconds here for you, Dave. I'm okay, sorry. Chris, yeah. Uh, you ever hear of Cato uh, Institute or Pew Research? Yes. They've done numerous studies on this. The immigrants, first generation, whether they're legal residents, whether you call them illegal residents or legal naturalized citizens, mm-hmm. first generation, all the same. They add a net benefit. Crime is lower. We have 8.8 million unfilled jobs, many of which are either uh, non-skilled or low-skilled jobs. It's a perfect match. Process them, vet them, process them. But they can't. That's the problem. They can't process and vet them. They can't process and vet them at the speed they're coming across. That's the issue. 
So I, I think that's maybe that's a, an area we could address. 800-859-0957. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, so does OJ have a podcast or no? We're trying to figure this out. Dave Rieger is telling us that OJ Simpson has a podcast, but no, does he? He does not. He doesn't. No, but he's okay. been guesting on podcasts. Oh, good. Good. What did he say about 9-11? <laughs> what did he say? I guess Aaron Rodgers was injured. On 9-11? Okay. That was the day he was injured? Yeah. So uh, OJ's comment was, 9-11, not a good day for New York. Oh, my God. I was like, what? So what, I, what, I gained, what I've gleaned from that is that OJ's not gotten any brighter over the years. I actually think <laughs> that he knows exactly what he's saying at all times. I, I mean, maybe. I, I think he knows exactly what he's saying. You think he does that just to get attention? Yes. Yes, I do. Because really, he can't, like, there's really nothing for him to do. Like, nobody's going to hire him. No. Like, like, the CVS down the street isn't going to be like, oh, OJ's got our new, uh, Come you know, OJ. cashier. Yeah. Like, that, like, he's just, I don't, right. he's not hireable nope. to do anything. So he just goes on social media and, and says silly things. Well, and if or he makes, goes on podcasts and, and says silly money, things. It still goes to the families, right? They I think so. Paid, so, yeah, he can't make So he money. doesn't make any money. He doesn't I, want to make anything. Nope. It's very strange. But I, I do believe, because he says the most outlandish things in times of, you know, when it's when things are buzzy or they're trending, and he just says the silliest things. Oh, not a terrible day in New York, 9-11. Oh, really, OJ? Thank you. Sky remains blue. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> but every once in a while, OJ resurfaces with something to say. But I, I would I listen to an OJ podcast? Probably. Didn't he write the book? What was the book he wrote? If, if I, I did, did it. it. Yeah. yeah. If I did it, here's what I would have done. And then laid out the exact same scenario in the case. Absolutely. <laughs> it was like it was a confession after he was found not guilty. So he could say whatever he did. And oh, then, yeah. And Tremendous. Then, the um the Brown family sued him, got control of the book, and re-released it, and they took the if off it. They just called it I Did It by O.J. Simpson. Did they really? They did. That really happened. Oh, that's tremendous. <laughs> and did they sell copies? I don't think they sold a lot. I don't think they sold any more than O.J. They sold. just they just <laughs> renamed it? Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um. Vladimir Zelensky is in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, he spoke to members of the House and the Senate behind closed doors, went over to the Pentagon, talked with Joe Biden. And and the idea here is for Zelensky to plead with lawmakers not to abandon Ukraine, not to abandon Ukraine financially, because Zelensky says, yes, it is Ukraine today, but it could be the world tomorrow. And if Russia rolls over and takes Ukraine, what does that mean for Poland? What does it mean for other countries in the region that are NATO countries? And and then, you know, one blast in those regions or in those countries, and it's a World War III. So Zelensky's almost acting as the the proverbial shield of, of NATO countries becoming involved in this. So it's interesting because... He even called for a joint session of Congress to which House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said, nah, no time. Also, they just went in, uh, they're done for the week without a spending bill. Uh, that's breaking just moments ago. 
Meanwhile, according to a new study, Brian, are you into or Danielle? Are you, do you guys like the uh, the the diet pop? Like, are you? I, I'm not a huge pop drinker, but when I do drink pop, I do not drink diet. It's always the regular stuff. Are you into the diet? Yeah, I drink the zero sugar, sir. You drink zero sugar. What about you, Danielle? I crave a diet Pepsi sometimes. Yeah, last night, in fact. Oh, last night. Yeah, just as recently as last night. Last okay. night and the night before. How about this? A new study at a Florida State University found that aspartame, non you know the non sugar, low calorie sweetener, has been linked to potential problems with memory and learning. Uh, aspartame normally found in sugar free or diet foods or drinks. The study found they tested three different groups of mice. One group was given a high level of aspartame. The second group was given less, and the third group was given water. And what the researchers found was that mice with higher amounts of aspartame completed tasks, but they did it at a slower pace. It took them longer to do it, and sometimes they needed a little extra help. While you you go down the line, if they had less, they had an easier time doing it, and the mice that just had the water were able to function completely normally. In terms of the the memory and anxiety or learning deficiencies that come with aspartame, um, it was more emotional and in in a lot of cases when it came to understanding a task, they had a really hard time with that. I mean, I I don't know that that's shocking news. I I think aspartame people have I don't like the taste that that yeah some of, that some fake do. taste yeah. like I can taste that. Well, you're talking about working slowly, bad memory, and anxiety. It makes me think Danielle drinks a lot of it. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> Shots fired. I'm done. I got to go. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't resist. I apologize. All right. Well, very good. The, the show is falling apart. Um, we're going to talk about the UAW. Uh, Marie Osborne ready to go. Um, day seven, Marie and yep. uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow, Sean Fain's going to take to Facebook. If they do not have, quote, unquote, serious progress with the big three, Marie Osborne joins us for an update. It's a serious situation. Where are we at? Yeah, tick-tock there, Chris. And, uh, again, the, the deadline is tomorrow at noon. But uh, Sean Fain will be making this statement at 10 a.m. And, and. Today, there's absolutely no question that this strike is now affecting more workers at more plants. GM idling its Fairfax assembly plant, that's in Kansas City. 2,000 workers there on two shifts laid off immediately. The layoff was the result of the strike at the Wentzville assembly plant in Missouri. Stellantis laying off about 370 workers at three parts factories in Ohio and Indiana. They supply the Jeep plant in Toledo. That's uh, a subject of the walkout. At the same time, Stellantis has made a new offer to the UAW. Bloomberg reporting, though, that the offer lacks the job security guarantees that the union really wants. All of this is happening as the union says workers are going to walk off the job at more facilities if there's no significant movement in the talks, like you said, Chris, and that's supposed to happen tomorrow. Now, we are hearing that the uh, that the 
talks are kind of slowing due to the issue of temporary workers. It's a key sticking point in these talks. The automakers say they want flexibility on this issue because they're trying to manage this move to EVs. The union says they've been pretty clear on this. They are opposed to temporary staff, saying it only creates inequality on the factory floor. You have temporary workers working right alongside uh, permanent workers and they're making uh, different amounts of money and that they say that's not fair. Anywhere from 5 to 10% of GM's factory workforce is temporary. Uh, at Stellantis, it's about 12%. Ford has about 3%. That gives you an idea of how many people we're talking about here. Now, as to where the possible strike targets will be tomorrow at noon, we don't know that yet. Of course, they try to keep that a secret, but they've had these practice picket lines on, uh, at some plants. So they're thinking that they may be at the Ford plant in Louisville, Kentucky, a GM plant in Bedford, Indiana, and a GM trunk plant in Arlington, Texas. But we'll see tomorrow, mm. Chris. Well, uh, it doesn't sound like there is serious progress. It sounds no. like there has been progress in a lot of areas, but the UAW and Sean Fain are not biting. So you're right. We will see tomorrow. Uh, Sean Fain will make that announcement at 10 a.m. and we will be glued to Facebook. Marie Osborne, thank you very much. Thank you. Remember the, the issues with Napster and the lawsuits by artists? Well, now authors are suing the makers of chat GPT over rights issues. Yeah, that's happening now. We'll talk about it next on JR Afternoon. Well, much like, not exactly, but when musical artists were suing Napster, for example, everything was too available. There was no compensation for artists at the time. And now you've got prominent authors, including the author of Game of Thrones, George R.R. R. Martin, joining others and accusing ChatGPT of theft in a new lawsuit. And this could serve as a, a quite a precedent for AI programs like ChatGPT by OpenAI, uh, a certain precedent going forward. Garrett DeVink is a tech reporter with The Washington Post and joins us. Garrett, good to have you. Good to be here. Um, this it, it feels like it's been brewing for a while. There, there have been lawsuits filed by by authors previously, um, but now you're getting some more high profile authors on board. What does this signify? Do you think? Yeah, I mean it's a really interesting question because I think with these AI models, there's sort of two ways of looking at the world when it comes to them. Because you know they were trained on pretty much the entire internet, so these companies went, they scraped up news articles, they scraped up Wikipedia, they scraped up social media comments that you and I have made over the years on Reddit, on YouTube. And these argue, these authors argue they also scraped up pirated versions of their books. And they fed that all into their algorithm and out came ChatGPT. And so, you know, it's not just books, it's not just news articles, it's sort of everything on the internet, including, you know, stuff written by regular people who aren't professional writers. And so, the tech companies are saying, look, all we did is we went and, you know, we read what's available on the open Internet and we use it to train a totally new product. Whereas the people who created this content, you know, it's not just authors. It's also Hollywood writers. It's journalists in some cases. It's musicians. They're saying, hold up. I don't remember checking a box saying 
just because I put something on the internet means that you can go and train a potentially very lucrative AI tool with it. And so that's really what this legal case is going to come down to and the other lawsuits as well. So the authors are asking for damages for the lost opportunity to license their works and for an injunction for OpenAI to stop using their work in 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 their mining of that data, like you mentioned. Um, does this put AI, if this lawsuit were, were to prevail, does this put AI a step back? Does that bring up the question of, is there just too much for it to know and there aren't enough regulations about it? Does, do those questions kind of come back up again? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because I think, yes, if these companies were never allowed to do this in the first place, because they were never allowed to go and scrape the Internet to create these things, you know, we wouldn't have these tools. The, the, the very reason they work is because they've been fed on just so much data. They've, they've essentially read the entire Internet and that's how they sort of develop their understanding of the world and the ability to answer these questions that we feed them. However, now that the horse is sort of out of the barn, they've gone and created these things. Maybe now they're going to say, okay, okay, we're sorry. We will pay you, George R. R. Martin, to use some of your books. We will pay the Hollywood studios to use some of the scripts. But because they've already developed the core technology, you know, maybe they don't need all that stuff anymore. And so I think there is this open question that no one really has an answer to of, you know, if these authors do prevail and the law says, hey, tech companies can no longer just take copyrighted works and feed it into their systems, you know, do they still even need to because they've kind of already gone and done it? Or are they going to have to un unwind all their work and try from scratch to make these things, you know, while paying for the data? So I guess here's what I don't understand about this. And maybe you could you could uh, sh shed some clarity on it. Are people going on to open uh, AI and chat GPT and saying, well, give me the first book of the Game of Thrones series. And is it is it writing it all out just as it is in the book? Or is it paraphrasing? Is it an, is it an, an abridged version, if you will, or a Sparks Notes version? Um, or is it just utilizing the information that it knows? Because if it were me, uh, right, and I wrote a book and it became incredibly successful and People just went on and said, well, write, write the book verbatim, what it is. Um, and I wasn't getting compensated for it. I, I could understand that would make me pretty upset, too. What is their main gripe here? Yeah, so it's, it's really difficult to get sort of a word-for-word -word copy out of these things, partly because, you know, the way they work is they sort of remix what they already know and spit it out slightly differently. But also the companies are quite clever, and they build in guardrails to, at least for really popular works, make sure that, their tools aren't, you know, exactly copying because they admit, you know, that would obviously be a problem for them if they were caught, you know, word for word spitting out copyrighted works. But I think what the authors are concerned about is that, you know, these tools were trained essentially how to become good writers by reading this really popular writing. And so even if it never fully copies word for word Game of Thrones, if OpenAI is able to, you know, use this tool to write a really good fantasy book that, you know, sort of has some of the same intrigue, the character development, you know, the, the weird plot surprises that George R. R. Martin has come up with, you know, do we, do we need him anymore, you know? And so there's this question of, you know, as a creator, you know, you put all this work into getting good at your craft, and then it was used to make this technology good at, you know, a similar craft. And is that going to start to replace us? And, you know, why didn't I get paid for that? Those, those are sort of where the anxiety is coming from, from these authors.
So uh, you've got comedian Sarah Silverman in another lawsuit. Um, Other authors have joined this as well, actors too. How does then this influence the, for example, the strike between the Writers Guild of America uh, and and SAG-AFTRA, what we're seeing out in Hollywood? How do these things mesh? Because, you know, AI is, is still a huge bone of contention in those negotiations and those talks. How, how do these kind of intertwine? Totally. I mean, I think if you start seeing judgments from court saying that what the AI companies have done is, you know, not allowed, that they should uh, compensate authors, I think that will really help the um, actors and the writers who are on strike because they want their, their argument essentially is that, you know, their bosses, the production companies, companies like Netflix, Amazon Prime, shouldn't use AI to write scripts. They should only use, use humans. And if they're going to use AI, they should make sure to run it past the humans to get compensation. <laughs> and what the companies want to do is they want to just be able to take everything that they already own, that, that humans have already written for them, feed it into an AI system, and then never have to use humans again. And, right. you know, the tech is not at that point yet, but it's feasible that in the, in the coming years, maybe it will get there. And so I think if the law comes down on the side of creators, of authors, of musicians, that will just give much more ammunition to people to say to their bosses, whether it's, you know, a Hollywood writer or, you know, anyone doing regular work, look, like I, as a human, provide this value and, and I don't want you to go use AI to replace me. And then that brings up the, the, the question that we've seen, and we don't need to get into a political talk, but, but you know, the president has hosted the, the heads of a lot of these AI companies um, and, and that, I think brings up the question then, should there be more regulations on this of what these platforms should be capable of or where are the guardrails? Where where can we we steer this in a proper direction? I, I, to me, that makes sense. If there are rules and regulations that are uniform, that they all have to follow in in the event of of, you know, avoiding situations like this. Yeah, I mean, and there's proposals to sort of, you know, find ways to kind of strengthen the copyright law so that AI companies can't use them. I mean, in some states, there's laws where, you know, for an athlete, for example, if a video game company wants to make like a basketball video game, they they have to pay the athlete to use their likeness. And so some politicians are suggesting that we make sort of a federal right to, you know, your likeness and, and your your output. And so that would apply to professionals and maybe even apply to regular people so that, you know, if you, you're putting photos of yourself online, you're putting your comments into social media, that some company isn't able to just scrape that and, and use it in its, in, in its training data. But, you know, regulation here in the U.S. federally, maybe a little less so on the state level, depending on which state you live in, it's, it's a really difficult and onerous process. And there's been all sorts of attempts to regulate yeah. the big tech companies over the last five years, and most of those have fallen completely flat. And I think there probably is a bit more consensus from everyone, yeah. including the companies, that they need regulation for AI. No doubt. But, you know, it's still a big process to get it through Congress. So we'll have to see. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and, and the the way that these lawsuits prevail or, or they, they go forward again, I think it's going to create an interesting precedent and one that we're going to watch. Garrett DeVink, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Uh, we'll take a break. Come back for more here on JR Afternoon. We we do have Steve Courtney coming into studio, so we'll get you caught up on. I mean, look, we got another big weekend in football, so we'll talk about that next on JR Afternoon. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back.
Rupert Murdoch, did you guys ever watch Succession? Were you ever into Succession? No. So Succession was, that was, it was loosely based on Rupert Murdoch as the head of a a, a media, you know, behemoth. And this tussle of who will be the successor, the, 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 the person to succeed this, this figurehead. Well, Rupert Murdoch is now transitioning into a new role as the chairman emeritus for the companies. 92 years old, his son Lachlan will become the sole chairman of the News Corporation and as CEO and executive chair of Fox. Uh, which is very interesting. And and the timing uh, plays out in the sense that there was a, it was a rough patch for Fox with the Dominion settlement where they had to pay almost $800 million uh, in, in their settlement. And Murdoch says that the companies are in robust health, as is he. Opportunities far exceed now commercial challenges, which is why he's stepping back. Uh, You've got Bob Iger, meanwhile, the CEO of Disney, in his second go-around, vows to quiet the noise in culture wars, which is interesting. So in a note in a report released by Needham & Company analyst Laura Martin, Iger told investors the day before that his primary goal is to quiet the noise because culture wars are bad for business. And that was one of the takeaways from the investor event in Orlando. The company announced plans to nearly double its investment in amusement parks and cruises to $60 billion over the next decade. He also talked about his leadership going forward uh, during this troubled time for Disney. Now, my question is, didn't Disney bring a little bit of this onto themselves and people pointed it out? How? In what way? So, like, you know, I, it's, the, it's almost like when you draw attention to something, you're looking for kudos or you're looking for you're looking for affirmation. So they'll say like, well, this is the first gay character in a Disney show or movie. And in reality, you should just make you, you didn't say that about Buzz and Woody. Yeah. They weren't uh, the first heterosexual toys in a Disney. You know what I mean? Like you're by saying something, you're drawing attention to it. You're putting a spotlight on it. And then that's when the criticism can come or the praise can come. And that's when you get the fighting. That's when you get the Ron DeSantis of the world looking to bring it back into a, into a place where in his mind can be more family friendly. Right. I see your point. So I, I kind of think Disney's brought a little bit of, of it on themselves, but, but just to, just to be the devil's advocate here, pointing it out is just really pointing it out. It's being inclusive as they say. And I know that's a horrible word to say, but it's being inclusive saying, we do have gay characters, we have Hispanic characters, we have black characters, we have, you know, being inclusive isn't anything other than saying, hey, we have this. The To me, the culture war started when DeSantis openly attacked them and started, you know, 
trying to rescind, you know, laws that have been there for however long. I forget the whole thing, but they were, yes. they were sh- Disney was basically its own They're their own government. Yeah. Essentially. And DeSantis shut that down. I just think that was the, the dumbest move ever. It's the, the biggest employer in the state, first of all. It's your, it's your economic driver. And we used to work for the mouse. And we all know you can't beat the no. mouse. No. <laughs> so you're, you're tilting in a windmill, and I think that was a bad thing. And I, I understand what you're saying is, yes, they're trying to bring attention to it. I'm not sure all they're trying to do is point out to, to maybe some kids Look, we're including everybody here under our umbrella. Yeah, and that's fine. I, I mean, I, I don't have fine, a problem yeah. with that. But but my point is, but you're right. That's where their... it invites yes. the nonsense. That's where you get into the craziness. Yes. Once you start wading into that territory, it's very hard to to backtrack. It's very hard to get out of. It's like quicksand. And and I mean, look, we saw it just a couple of weeks ago. They've had their lowest attendance in in decades. Um, and you could you could call it for whatever reason. But at the end of the day, I think that when you draw attention to it, you know, even going back to the Bud Light issue, right? When 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 you're saying, well, we're going to be more inclusive and we're going to take away the frat party-like atmosphere around Bud Light. No, no, no. Just market it then. Just market it. Because when you start waiting out and making a big deal about something, well, that's when people can be, uh, they can get in their feelings about something. To me, there's a there's a there's a fine line between marketing and and doing things that are good for business. Right. And I think Disney has found themselves blurring that line from time to time. Disney, like a lot of companies, it's hard to toe that line. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I'm not you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. But at the same time, the people went up in arms about the Little Mermaid. Remember the Little Mermaid? Ah, That's nonsense. Most of what this is is nonsense. Well, maybe. I mean, any of the culture war stuff is nonsense. If you don't like it, here's a newsflash. If I don't like a TV show, I change the channel. Oh, agree. If I don't enjoy the beer, I don't drink the beer. I went out a couple of times and my wife has left. I've ordered Bud Light and she went, why? And I said, just to be obstinate because Bud Light's an awful beer. Why would you (laughs) drink it to start with? (laughs) <laughs> like I don't care who's drinking this beer. I don't. I. I mean, I honestly, if I'm going to get this wound up about somebody who wants to cross dress or be transgender, that's about me, and I've got issues. Then it's like I just don't. You know, as long as you're not hurting another person, I don't care what you do. It doesn't affect me. Yeah. And, well, I. I think what this tells you, what Iger's comments tell you, is that that's real. Right. Because it's this this on his radar and he wants to stop this discourse is real. And whether or not that's their fault, whether or not that's Ron DeSantis's fault or other or or just your everyday customer's fault, whatever, whoever fault it is, somebody's got to be the person in the room to say, okay, we need to we need to do something different here. Because if we continue down this path and we alienate an entire group of people because we are we are making a big deal out of something and not over something else, it's not good for business. We I, don't make as much money. And I'm not sure it's a fault issue. I don't Whatever know who's at fault. I think this is, we were talking yesterday about people are so angry oh, it's, about it's, nothing. It's wild. That's This is sort of part of that. It's like I see something that's different and it's just, I get angry. It's like, 
The Little Mermaid's not a red hair. I don't I don't care. It's a cartoon. It's a movie. I don't care. It's, it's crazy to me. You know, it's it's fiction. It's like Correct. The, it's I a had, mermaid. I had years ago It's a woman's me, torso he, from the the belly yeah. up and a fish on the yeah, bottom. It's yeah. not even real. I had somebody tell me years ago they got mad would let their kids watch SpongeBob because Squidward was gay. And I went, he's he's drawn. He's literally nothing. When they erase him, he's completely gone. So why would you think? I mean, it's that crazy to me. Yes. Like, this is insanity. Yeah, I, I I agree. But I think that what Bob Iger is saying is that we need, to, if, if we want to continue to be as profitable as we can be. And look, Disney, uh, here's a, a fun factoid. It's pretty expensive to go. And it, it's pretty expensive to produce what they produce. So like... They need to continue to make boatloads of money and charge you, you know, whatever I paid for a a, a basket of chicken fingers earlier this year. <laughs> whatever, $13 for some fries. Like, it's nonsense. So, like, if they want to continue that that money train, you, you, you got to do something to quiet the noise. And I think that's what Bob Iger realizes. And we just had a caller who said this is about... The little kids. He goes, it's fine for you and me to understand that inclusion and that stuff, but this Agreed. is about the two to five-year-olds. Yeah. Do you yes. Think, do you think a two-year, two to five-year-old understands this? Well, I don't. So, but I, then uh, oh, see, I'm taking. Unless you explain it to them. I'm taking the approach of they're two and, f- they're, you know, they're five you years old. You have a two and a five-year-old. Yeah, I do. I'm, right, I'm in that it, demo. If you don't explain it to them. No. It mostly goes over their head anyway. No. So, Correct. Yeah. So I. But it, but it's also like I'm not trying to take away a really fun thing for them. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Based on whatever I think about anything. Right. So I I mean look yeah, if you're indoctrinating kids you're you're right you don't want to do that and that's insane but if you're just showing a little kid that you treat everybody well and it doesn't matter then I think that's okay too. Now Bob Iger says we got to do something about this because they are losing money in their parks. And, I mean, even in some of their latest features. Well, if they could slow it down in general, he's not wrong. No, no. And and maybe that's just good for the public discourse anyway. And maybe we could all quit yelling yeah, at each other. Yeah, good God. <laughs> Shut up, Brian. I got to go to break. We'll take a break. <laughs> Next. All right, big football weekend. We got a big time payout. Tigers with the new general manager. Steve Courtney joins us to break it all down. Thanks for Hello. having me. Thanks for having me. Long time listener. Um, this Pay the bills. <laughs> brought to you by Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Whether you're into the Honolulu Blue and Silver, the Green and White, the Maize and Blue, Motor City Football is back. Performance Remodeling invites you to get in the game with their $100,000 Window of Opportunity Sweepstakes. Log into WindowsRoofingSiding.com for a chance to win Performance Remodeling's $100,000 Window of Opportunity Sweepstakes. All right, in case you didn't know, your Detroit Tigers putting the finishing touches on this 2023 campaign. They've been in search of a general manager. The search is over. Team announcing today that it has indeed hired Jeff Greenberg, an associate GM for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks for that particular job. I'll explain. Don't you worry. President of Baseball Operations Scott Harris, whom the Tigers, by the way, hired one year and two days ago, uh, brings in someone he's very familiar with. How about this quote? It's an extraordinary honor to take on this role with one of the most historic franchises in Major League Baseball. This is what Mr. Greenberg said 
in a statement released today. Now, he's 37 years of age. He worked for the Blackhawks 16 months when he joined as an associate GM to revamp the team's analytics. A rather brief stint, uh, new sport for Greenberg, who worked with the Chicago Cubs front office for over a decade before switching teams there in the Windy City. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Greenberg is indeed credited with uh, growing both the Cubs and Blackhawks analytics departments. Uh, He was in the Cubs organization, by the way, when they won the World Series in 2016, helping create data systems for identifying and developing talent alongside the aforementioned Scott Harris, Theo Epstein, and Jed Hoyer. Uh, Harris, one year younger than Greenberg, will still be running the show as the president of baseball operations. Greenberg, for the record, will be second in command. Chris, analytics. Let's Across do the it. board in sport, it's huge. It's huge, and it, it, there is no bigger sport than baseball for analytics, and and certainly I think NFL is right behind them. Um, but you need that approach. I think that's where everybody's going if they're not already there. And when Scott Harris took this job, he talked about bringing this organization up to date on their analytics, and I think this is a huge step in that direction. Well, I think he's only hitting two thirteen <laughs> in ninth games. Right? <laughs> I mean, it all holds true. You know, I understand Ugh. the importance of analytics, but at the same time, how many home runs did he hit last year? What's the RBI situation? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's old school stuff, I guess. Yeah. And what's his ops? Are you going to tell me to get off your lawn, too? <laughs> hey, the birthday boy's Happy here. Happy 72nd birthday to Ken Brown. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Way to go. Oh, this Mike. Thank you Turn very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if this uh, broadcast goes out to uh, Saudi Arabia, one of the rich sheiks over there, please wire me money tonight for my birthday, and I will accept it. Vimo, any other, any way you want to send it. They'll just airdrop you a yacht in yeah, like just, Michigan. Yeah. You know, the money you would have spent for dinner for the week, just send yeah. it to me. Yeah, yeah. okay, good. Yeah, kept it you. under uh, wraps there, KB. I didn't know it was your well, birthday. You know I'm going to put a walk around with a, with a hat and one of those little buzzers going on. I mean, come what on. are you talking to me? He came in and he had balloons tied around his wrist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Looked like the house from up. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. You ever, especially in the African-American culture, people with money on their um, they pin, especially women, they pin money to their I've seen that. thing on their birthday and you that. go around and do that. I think is I that what it is, start. a birthday thing? Yeah, it's a birthday thing. You, you, well, you're not going to get much around here. And then you walk here. around the office, but I've seen some wads, trust me, some wads of money. Have you really? ever got, have, no, has, has you ever that ever happened here? No, here, please. Now, is that supposed to be an enticement for people to say, hey. Danielle will yeah. pin an IOU why, to your please, lapel. Danielle. Why have got why It's why like birthday treat. You put dough there and you put your money on it. your birthday? Oh, yeah. So if you ever see people with tie it with money there you go pin to their so give them something uh did you see this story about the betting about the FanDuel payouts yeah no that uh the bet was every team in the 12 o'clock in the 12 the 12 games in the afternoon games last week mm-hmm. there would be at least one field goal made it was 200 to one odds on FanDuel mm-hmm. and what did they pay out Steve uh well this uh group of individuals a uh, member of the popular sports betting discord gold boys uh, took full advantage of this. He laid down $1,584 on that prop at 200-to-1 odds. And when Graham Gano, uh booted it for the Giants in the last uh, late game, uh, he collected $316,800. So the, the, odd, the, 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 the bet was every team. Not, not each game had to have a field goal. Every team had to kick a field goal. 
Yeah, every team in the 12 afternoon games to make at least one field goal. Every team. Um, And then there were uh, different odds here. Uh, I think you had uh, 200 to 1 on FanDuel. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another service had it going off at 20 or 30 to 1, which, uh, yeah, DraftKings was going off at 30 to 1. Now, a FanDuel spokesperson actually said, out of the more than 21,000 wagers, that were placed on this field goal prop, the average size of the bet was $6. But 200 to 1? That's still a little bit of money. I mean, that's a little, bit, bit, of, that's a little bit of cash. Yeah, a little bit of money. In the last 20 seasons, there have been only two Sundays in which every team in the afternoon games made at least one field goal. Before last Sunday, you'd have to go to October 10th, 2010. Twenty million bucks, Fanduel had to pay out. Well, Seattle's kicker was trying to make that not happen. Wasn't yeah, he? true. <laughs> yeah, missed oh, two of them. He was trying. Yeah, he yeah. was trying not to make that happen. Yeah. What do you guys got coming up? Well, we're going to talk about the uh, Murdoch takeover or a new young Murdoch takeover. Stepping down. We're going to talk about the writer strike that might be over. We're going to talk to a woman. Wait, who, wait, wait, wait. The writer strike might be over. It's a rumor that they might be uh, coming close to a agreement. No kidding. So we'll talk about that. Okay. We're also going to talk to a woman who thinks that the dress code in the Senate should not uh, be upgraded. You should be able to wear what you want. And she's a CNN contributor. Here, here. We're going to talk about that. And then we'll just talk about dress codes in particular. Because the way stuff? you walk in here, I see the dress code around here. Is yeah, you know what? I'm collapsing this joint up. You and Courtney over here. The dress code is nil around here. Trust Don't me. you bring me into it. <laughs> So we're going to talk about that. we got a movie uh, review from Adam Graham, and then we got a couple other things that you'll be happy to do. We're going to talk about body MRIs again. We're going to go back to phone calls about that. If uh, you Do you want to take an MRI every year, a full body? No. Yes. Why? Let's, I mean, what do I got? What, what's, there's something wrong in there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Let's address it. You're fine, dude. Let's move on. You know, then you'll have it done, and they'll say, well, you know what? There's a... Real slight chance that you're in line for yada, yada, yada. And then what do you do, Chris? You sit there and wait yeah. for yada, yada, yada. Well, but then my next MRI, I'm ready to go. Just cut me open, take it out. Let's do it. Don't do it. Let's go. I Live know. your life. Live. All right. Live. <laughs> All right, Mitch Alman, the crew, coming up next. It's going to do it for us. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a good one.